0: Good morning. Let's go to uh, Genesis 1 together. If you don't have a Bible with you but you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks. there in front of you somewhere. And Genesis is at the beginning, so it's pretty easy to find. And I'll say again, as we say often, if you don't own a Bible and you want to keep that one, by all means do so. We've got plenty. We'll put them back out there. You make sure you take that home if you don't own a Bible. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that the Bible makes uh, a pretty controversial statement in today's culture. It would not have been a very controversial statement in the culture to which it was originally addressed, but it is a pretty controversial statement in our culture. And that Controversial statement is that the universe is a created thing, which means that if it is a created thing, it is not simply the product of time and chance. It is a creation of the God who has revealed himself in a variety of ways throughout human history, not the least of which is through the written word that many of us hold in our hands, are scanning on our devices this morning. But the next question that, of course, we ought to be asking is if, is if the universe is a created thing, then how exactly was it created? And it's that which we're going to turn our attention to this morning. Many students, when they end up in high school or college, find themselves sitting in an English class, a literature class, a world history class, and they are surprised to learn that there are other accounts of the beginning of the world, other, other ancient accounts which have parallels and similarities with the opening chapters of Genesis. I'll give you a couple of examples of these. One of those is the Enuma Elish, which is from ancient Mesopotamia. The Enuma Elish describes the beginning of everything as as a watery chaos. And as that story progresses, out of the watery chaos emerge two gods, Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is the god of fresh water. Tiamat is the goddess of salt water. They have, uh, they, they have a bunch of little baby gods, and then uh, what happens is that Tiamat gets angry with her children, and her solution to that is to create 11 monsters to destroy them. Now, moms, you've been angry with your kids before. I'm not saying you've ever been there But I'm not saying you haven't been there either. She creates these 11 monsters to destroy her children. And I'm compressing the story a little bit, but basically there's this battle between her children and the monsters, and eventually Marduk, one of her children, defeats them and actually kills his mother, Tiamat. And he creates the heavens and the earth out of her corpse, (laughs) So, savage, (laughs) Uh, but that's that's the story (laughs) of the Enuma Elish. He also creates human beings out of the corpses of other gods that he kills along the way. There's another story, the Atrahasis epic. This story has a flood account in it, a person who is saved in a flood by building a boat, but at the beginning of the Atrahasis epic, it explains... Uh, how human beings came into existence, and the, the basic gist of it is that there were, there were greater gods and they were lesser gods, and the greater gods are making the lesser gods do all their work for them. So the lesser gods are digging out the beds of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and they're, they're tired of it because it's a lot of hard work, and so the lesser gods come up with a plan. Wait a minute. We're gods too. Why don't we create humans, and then they can do all this work for us and then we don't have to dig out the beds of the Tigris and Euphrates River. And so that's exactly what they do. They, they create human beings to do the work that they're tired of doing. The flood comes because the human beings that they create are noisy and annoying. And they create a lot of racket. And so they decide that they're going to wipe them out because they have disturbed their rest. I said that there are similarities... Between these stories in the first couple chapters of Genesis. But as you can probably see in what I've just said, the, similar, the, the differences are far greater than the similarities. Rather than seeing the creation account in Genesis as just one version of all those myths or dependent in some way on those other accounts, what Genesis does is actually repudiate those accounts. Genesis presents a a vision and picture of God that is completely out of step and antithetical to these depictions of origins. Put simply, the creation account in Genesis is meant to make a theological statement, theological points about God, and hopefully by the end of our time today, we'll see some of those contrasts together. But again, if you were with us last week, you might remember that the Bible begins, the opening verse of Genesis begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what often happens is our, in our minds is we skip over verse 2 directly into verse 3. But verse 2 tells us something interesting. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 tells us that after God creates the heavens and earth, it gives a description. It says that the earth was without form and void. That It's without form, and void here means empty. So the world is without form and empty, and the Bible also said that the whole thing is blanketed in darkness. And so when we read that, the author is, is asking us to ask the question, what's God going to do with this? What is God going to do with this place that is unformed, unfilled, and layered and blanketed in darkness? And I said last week that we were going to see that God is going to make this place sing as He fills it with light, forms it, and fills it with beauty for His glory and for creation's good. What we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 1 is a presentation of the creation of the world by God in six days, and we're going to see him begin first by addressing the issue of darkness, by creating light. But then after he creates light, we are going to see the creation story directly addresses these other two issues: that that the that the heavens and the earth are without form and void; they're they're unformed and unfilled. And what I'm going to show you here on the screen behind me in just a moment is is the parallels, the beautiful parallels that are that are uh, expressed in the creation week. As we see in the first three days, God forms spaces, and on the second three days, uh, fill those spaces. Let me show you what I mean. On the form side of things, in day one, we see God creating what we might refer to as the space of day and night. On day two, we see him creating the spaces of ocean and sky. And on day three, we see him create the space of land. And so we've got three, three uh, formations that, 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 that make it so that it is no longer unformed, Then what we're going to see on the filled side of things is is that each corresponding day is going to fill that corresponding space. So on day four, we're going to see God fill that space of day and night with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, we're going to see him fill the oceans and the sky with fish and birds. And on day six, we're going to see him fill the land with animals and humans. Do you see Verse 2 is expressing that we've got a place that's dark, it's unformed, it's unfilled. Now we're going to see it become a place. There are going to be spaces created, it's going to be formed, and it's going to be filled. Now we could spend a lot of time on this chapter, but what we're going to do is just walk briefly through the creation account and through the days this morning. Day 1 is found in verses 3 to 5. And this is the day in which light is created. And the Bible tells us that God says, "Let there be light," and there was light. He speaks light or energy into existence. And the Bible also tells us that that this space is now going to become regulated by rhythms of day and night. There are all kinds of cultural differences that we have with people throughout the ages or people and cultures throughout our world right now. But one of the constants throughout all of human existence in any culture or any time period is that we have all lived with the rhythms of day and night. And one of the th- things that I want to point out here that's interesting on day one is I want you to notice that God creates light without a light source, Isn't that interesting? I don't really have any more to say about it than that. It's interesting. (laughs) Light without a light source. It's just there. Day 2, verses 6 to 8. We have the spaces of the ocean and sky filled. If you're there with me in Genesis 1, look at verses 6 to 8. The Bible says in verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. So count five times in just those verses I read, God speaking of the expanse, this is a separation. Basically what the Bible is telling us here is that is that we have a separation of the water of water so that there are waters above and there are waters below and there is an expanse between them. One of the things that we often have to do as modern readers is we have to step out of our shoes and into the sandals of the original readers to try to understand things from their perspective. And one of the there are all kinds of, of things that we bring to the table that they wouldn't have brought to the table when they read things like this. For instance, when we think about the earth and we think about planet earth, you and I are able to visualize the earth. Just think, just think about how few people in human history could actually do that. The first photo of planet earth was taken in 1946. There are people in our church that were alive when the first photo I'm not gonna say who. They exist. They've existed for a long time. (laughs) Uh, That was uncalled for. They. They exist. And it's it's a grainy photo, and it's not the whole thing, and it's black and white but our conception is radically different one of the things that the bible is doing here and does throughout this account is it describes things as they as they as they are as they can be seen from our from our perspective a person on the ground floor they would have conceived they wouldn't have conceived of the earth as a as a globe necessarily they wouldn't have understood concepts of atmosphere and space at this point there's stuff that's above there's stuff that's below there's an expanse between them And this upper area is called heaven, which is not probably referring to the place of God's dwelling necessarily, but just referring to that upper area because the word heaven can be used in in numerous ways. On day three in verses nine to 13, we see the, the space of the land being created. So we've got waters above and waters below but now there are further further boundaries created w- below with with land that it that land that has a, has established boundaries for the seas and the rivers and lakes and all of those sorts of things and there's vegetation that is put on this land that can propagate itself it can reproduce itself it can drop seeds into the soil that will spring up dandelions can and have those little fluffy things at the top, whatever those things are called. I told you last week, I'm not a science guy, and you're going to see that a lot. Uh, the fluffy things that float off, and they land somewhere else, and they create more dandelions. So no longer do we have a place that is unformed. We've got a place that is very much formed in the first three days, but this, these spaces that have been, been formed, these spaces that have been created are unfilled. And so now the, the latter three days of creation are going to address that. On day four, in verses 14 and 19, we see the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. And we see God filling what he's formed on day one. And we would have expected that God would have created the light source before he creates the light, but he is always defying our expectations. And so here we are on day four with the light sources being created. And the, the sun and the moon and the stars are amazing things. I'm going to put a picture up behind me. You've probably seen something like this. This is a, a, an unfiltered photo of the moon. And this is called a super wolf blood moon. That is a very cool name. Scientists, I think, this is just my opinion, and I'm sorry if there's scientists here, scientists often pick boring names for stuff. So, one scientist said, let's call that a waxing gibbous moon. That's a boring name. But when they were workshopping this one, and somebody said, let's call it a super wolf blood moon, (laughs) I think they got it right. (laughs) This is amazing, the fact that, that stuff like this exists, the immensity, the, 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 the scale that we're dealing with, and we're talking about the earth and its relationship to the moon and the sun, and the magnitude of these things and what they're made out of and how far away they are. I mean, it's, it's staggering for us to think about. And the Bible tells us that God created them. I want you to notice in these verses, though we didn't read them, I want you to notice that the Bible actually never uses the name for the sun and the moon, which is strange because you would think those words are available, those names would be used. But the Bible instead chooses to speak in terms of the greater lights and the lesser lights, and then almost as a, parent, a parenthetical comment, and the and the stars. And we don't know exactly why that's the case, but there are scholars and theologians who believe that once again, what Genesis is trying to do is differentiate itself from these these other accounts, these other creation myths. These other creation myths almost always worship the sun and the moon And the stars, and what Genesis is doing is deliberately distancing its its account of this, and saying these things are beautiful and wonderful, but they are created things that are not to be worshipped. Day number five is found in verses twenty to twenty-three. God fills the spaces of sea and sky with fish and birds. Genesis chapter one and verse twenty says this. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So when when God, is creating, when God has created these spaces, he's then going to fill these spaces. And one of the things he's going to fill these spaces with is the picture behind me. This uh, terrifying thing is an anglerfish... And one of the reasons why I am never going to go deep sea diving, because those things are there. And God decided that he would put those things there. They're actually kind of amazing. They have these bioluminescent uh, fins and, I don't know, like hair things. Uh, Again, not a science guy. uh, Hanging off of them. And one of the ways they're able to attract prey is by having this little light. If you've, I think there's one of these things, a version of these things in uh, Finding Nemo. Um, but uh, they've, they've got that little light that's hanging out and a little fish is drawn to the light and then boom, they're dead. They're lunch for the anglerfish. And God created stuff like that. And he put it in the oceans and he put birds and put them in the skies and they are able themselves to be fruitful and multiply just like the vegetation that he places on the earth. Day six, we find in verses 24 to 31, that's a typo on my part, uh, where it says 14, that should be 24 to 31. But on day six, God takes the land and he puts animals and humans on it. So God creates all the animals, including the one on the screen behind me, I know, I knew you'd do that. I put it up there just so you would do that. That's a quokka. Quokkas are the happiest animals on earth. And you can see why quokkas are the happiest animals on earth, because they're smiling while they eat their lunch. Quokkas are so happy, they only, they only exist in a couple of places. They exist on a couple of islands off of Australia, Australia, uh, They're happy. You can go there and take selfies with them. They like that, and people do that. So if you search for quokka selfies, I would recommend you not do that right now. Uh, You'll find lots of pictures of people taking uh, their selfies with quokkas. I will tell you this about them that's going to kind of ruin it for you. Uh, They're marsupials, so they got their babies in their pouches. And one time somebody said, you know, the problem with quokkas is that when they're in danger, they throw their babies at the predator. (laughs) And the scientists came along and said, that is not true. They do not throw their babies at their predators. They throw their babies out of their pouch to create a diversion so they can escape the predator. (laughs) So, (laughs) quokkas are the happiest animals on earth, but they are ruthless. (laughs) That quokka is smiling because it's gonna get away. There's no point to me putting all these pictures up there other than to show you, like, this is stuff that exists. Isn't this amazing? (laughs) Then the Bible tells us that God creates what we might call the crown jewel. One more word about quakas, actually. I had somebody come up to me after the first service. I'm not going to say who it was. But they were looking on how to buy a uh, while while I was preaching. So you're better than them if you're not doing that. Um, and you can illegally buy a quokka on the internet for $2,500 if any of you want to do that. But you did, not, you did not hear it from me. We know a guy. God creates what we might call the crown jewel of creation, which are humans. Look with me again at uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. Look at verse 26. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You can see the importance and value in human beings by the way the text talks of them in a couple of different ways. The first way that we can see the importance of human beings is by the amount of time devoted to them. The, as, as we walk through the creation days, the Bible speaks in pretty general terms. It doesn't tell us about quokkas or superwolf blood moons or anglerfish. It doesn't tell us about any of that stuff. It tells us that stuff was made, but it moves through it very quickly. When we get to humanity, it stops and it slows down and it spends more time, which is telling us something. We're getting, we're building towards something that is most important in creation. Another reason we know why uh, human beings are important is because of what the Bible says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human beings are the only part of creation which, which bear that title, that they are made by, in God's image and after God's likeness. Now, we're going to spend some time in another sermon exploring those concepts and why they are so important, especially important for today. But for our purposes right now, we're going to keep moving forward. Man is, man, men and women are the pinnacle... In, in a real sense of God's creation. But as important as they are, they are not the pinnacle of the creation week because by my count, we've got six days and weeks have seven days in them. And so there is a seventh day that we want to talk about, day seven in chapter two, verses one to three. This is a day in which God's rest is described. Look with me at chapter two in verse one. to to read that idea of God resting from his work in the right way. The imagery that the Bible is trying to give us here is not God having a long week at the office. And he's coming home, and he's sitting down in the recliner and, and flipping it up, and finally getting a moment's rest after a hard week of work. God creates effortlessly he speaks and things are in fact god doesn't need 6 days to create god it it didn't take god that long because he had so much to do he could have spoken the whole thing into existence boom it's there so god doesn't need a nap god's rest means ceasing from his labor. And there's an important feature here to this day that's going to be kind of like a little breadcrumb, a little teaser that you can file away for a little bit later, but there's a feature to all of these days that's not present in the seventh day. And all of these days they end with, an evening and morning was the first day, the third day, the fourth day, etc. But that isn't present in the seventh day, which is, I believe, the author's Way of telling us that there is something about this day that is still going, and that's something that we want to come back to and explore on in another message here in the near future. But here will suffice it to say that on the seventh day God rests, He refrains, he ceases from his work. Okay, that was like a sprint through the creation days and if you are not familiar with that, many of us are. But if that's this is unfamiliar territory to you, then I would encourage you to read through those things on your own time, even today. I also want to say that I understand that the idea of God creating is totally out of step with sincerely and very much held convictions of our day. I, I totally understand. I'm saying that. I can't apologize for it any more than I can apologize for believing in the fact that our faith is built on someone rising from the dead. There's not a lot of scientific explanation for that either. But the foundation of our faith is something that the world believes is absolutely incredible. So everything is built on that. You you can't be a Christian and deny the resurrection. So we're already in for the supernatural stuff. But I do want to point out a couple of alternative viewpoints of this creation account. There are some brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in a theistic understanding of, a theistic understanding of evolution. Some would call that evolutionary creation, and their understanding is that, that God... Is the first cause? God is the unmoved mover of Aristotle. He is what lies south of the South Pole for Stephen Hawking. If you weren't here last week, then that's not necessarily going to make sense to you. But but they believe God is a first cause, and it is evolutionary processes that either are guided or unguided by Him that bring us up here into the present day. I see it. I personally see some significant difficulties with this perspective. The first difficulty I have with this is that it requires us to read the Genesis account as something that is non-historical. They would understand this as a story that's intended to tell us that God is powerful and started everything. And that's the point of the story, but the actual, the actual events themselves did not happen. The problem with this for me is that so much of the Bible seems to assume a historical understanding of this. We have genealogies in the book of Genesis that trace their way back to Adam. Not a a mythological story meant to tell us something about God, but they seem to take us to a real person. We have a genealogy in in Matthew's gospel that traces the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam, seemingly assuming that he is a real historical person. Both Jesus... And the Apostle Paul make multiple references to the first three chapters of Genesis and seem to reference Adam and Eve as historical people. In fact, Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 5 is really dependent on Adam being a real person. Because in Romans chapter 5, this is where the Apostle Paul presents the idea of, of Jesus Christ being, remember, a second Adam. He is, God's represent, he is God's representative of people, and so as Jesus represents us before God, he brings to us the benefits of his obedience, salvation. Whereas the first Adam represented all humanity before God and gives us the lack of benefits of his sin. I mean, it just seems pretty difficult for me to get around the historical nature of these people. A second difficulty I have with that conception is that the Bible tells us that death is a direct result of sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, So what the Bible is telling us here is that, is that death is a direct result of sin and the curse that comes along with it. Even if we grant that the curse of death was, re, was speaking specifically and only about human death, any evolutionary concept of origins requires extraordinary amounts of time and periods of human death. So personally, I just don't know how to square this with what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 1. And I'll tell you, those who advocate for that sort of view have answers to those things, responses to those things, but I don't personally find them compelling. There's another viewpoint that I just want to briefly mention that suggests that these days in Genesis refer not to actual 24-hour days, but to time periods. And they do so because the word day in the Old Testament can sometimes not refer to a single 24-hour day, but to a time period. When, when the Bible talks about the coming day of the Lord, it's not talking about a single day, but it's talking about a time period. And so there are those who see these days as referring to time periods. The benefit of this view is that it's able to reconcile the Genesis account with the uh, seeming relative age of the earth in terms of long periods of time. I don't think it's necessarily going to satisfy uh, people in the scientific realm because if it leaves out any concepts of evolution of human beings. But if you want to study this more, I've got a book that will get you started on it. The book is called Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. And there's a whole bunch of books in this series, but the great thing about the Four Reviews books is it allows a person who holds a particular position to articulate their position. And here's something I want to caution you from doing, because we all do this. A lot of times, the only thing we do is read what people on our team say about the other person's position. And that feels good, (laughs) but sometimes it's good to read what the other people on whatever other team is, read what they actually say, and then respond to that. And one of the great things about the Four Views books is it lets each person with their view express their view, allows the others who have contributed chapters in that book to respond to what they've said, and then it allows the author of that view to respond one more time to what they have said. It's a, it's a great, concise way, and it'd be a great place for you to dig more into that if this is new uh, territory for you. And I've got other books I can, I can recommend as well. All right, but let's... Let's move, towards, let's move towards ending this morning by kind of trying to tie some of this stuff together because you remember at the beginning of the message I said this is, this is intending, this account is intending to make a theological point for us. It's intending to tell us something or some things about God that are to draw us to worship. One author who writes about this chapter says this, Genesis 1 is more than a repudiation of contemporary Oriental creation myths. And that's important. Okay, it is a repudiation of contemporary Oriental creation myths, but it's more than that. We're not trying to repudiate Oriental creation myths, most of us anymore, but there are other things that we're trying to use Genesis 1 to repudiate, and that's good, but it's more than that. He goes on to say, It is a triumphant invocation of the God who has created all men and an invitation to all humanity to adore him who has made them in his own image. The creation account invites us to worship because it declares truth about God that is intended to to cause us to respond, to have a response of worship well up within our hearts. It invites us to worship because it declares two truths about God. It declares more than two, but I want to highlight two. First, creation declares God's glory. Creation declares God's glory. Creation myths like the Atrahasis epic and the Enuma Elish have drastically different conceptions of God. I want to highlight just four of those for you. In the first place, those stories feature multiple gods who are struggling for dominance. Who's going to come out on top? The creation account has no hint of struggle. God stands alone, unrivaled, and unequaled. In the second place, those stories depict the gods struggling to create order from a watery chaos. Genesis reveals a God who takes that which is formless and empty and fills it effortlessly with his word. In the third place, those stories, and I've mentioned this already, those stories often equate the sun, moon, and stars with God's while Genesis goes out of its way to make very clear that as, as amazing as the super blood wolf moon is, it is not an object of worship. It is intended to make us worship, but it is intended to point us to its creator and not to the thing itself. Fourthly, in these accounts, human beings are created to meet the needs of the gods. In the creation account that we've just walked through, human beings are not created to meet God's needs. Why? Because God has none. There has never been a moment where God needed What's interesting, though, in every other creation story, we have gods creating humans to meet their needs. In our story, we have God creating humans to meet our needs. What does that tell you about what he's like? No wonder the psalm writer in Psalm 19 and verse 1 can burst into praise saying this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. When I see that in verse two, when I see that statement, day to day pours out speech, I think that the universe is a prolific place. When you think about an author who is prolific, when we say that an author is prolific, what do we mean? We mean that that author has been able to to churn out lots of words, lots of pages, lots of books, and there are some prolific authors out there. And I think one of the things that the Bible is telling us is that the creation itself is prolific. It shows us Thing after thing after thing after thing. A, a, a deluge of these things that point forward to God and declare his glory. The sky is full of those things. The earth is full of those things. It declares that God is glorious. But I want us to see in the second place that creation also declares God's glory. Goodness. No less than seven times in this chapter that we've read together, the Bible tells us that God declares that His creation is good. Twice in this chapter, it tells us that He blesses His creation. Now, there's no question. Creation's been corrupted. We all know that by experience. That's why I titled the message today, A Very Good Place to Start. But creation itself, even corrupt creation, is still a reflection of God's goodness. And I want you to just stop for a moment. I want you to put yourself, wherever that place, is where you feel the goodness of God in creation. Where is, where is that place for you? Where is that place that you wish you could always be? Now, some of you hate the beach. And having lived for a, a long, large part of my life away from the beach, I don't know how you guys do that. But I guess the thing you're around is the thing you don't care about. So you can plug something else in. But there's just something about the feeling of being at the beach for me. When the sun is out and you can just start to feel that bite on your skin that's like, okay, you have really got to make sure your are sunscreened up because you're about to be fried. <laughs> but when you are, there's a, there's a great feeling when, when I've been at the beach all day and I'm walking off of the beach and there's that combination of sand and salt water and sun that the warmth of the sun at like 5 or 6 o'clock when it's kind of past and it's just it feels good. Now, maybe you hate the beach. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe it's Arizona. What do you got about Arizona? Arizona's pretty. <laughs> People are laughing about Arizona. Uh, it's, you know, you got Sedona in there. you got the, the colored uh, whatever the things are. you got cactuses. You don't see those here. It's all kinds of stuff in Arizona that's good. Um, but you've got your place. And maybe it's the place where you grew up. Maybe it's that pond that you used to fish in. But it's where you, you feel at home in creation. Creation is a place that's still uh, full of goodness in many ways as you feel that feeling. Or you get out of the car or open your gate to go to work. You see a spider web that's got dew all over it and you can see every single delicate strand on that thing. Or maybe you look up and see the brilliance of a super wolf blood moon. I'll leave Quakas out because they're... They're probably in our doghouse right now. The goodness of creation is intended to reflect to you the goodness of its creator. When you feel that, when you see that, when you experience that, whatever that is, whatever makes you pull out your phone, Say, I got to get a picture of that. That is an expression of the goodness of God, still reflected. And it ought to draw grateful worship from our hearts. The New Testament tells us, and I mentioned this last week, but the New Testament tells us that God created through his Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, speaking of this, says, Through whom, that's referring to Jesus, also He, God, created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. I mean, Think of the, the beauty of the Christology that's, that's presented to us in those short verses. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And though, though there are scientifically discoverable laws that govern everything from magnets to rainbows to electrons to gravity and everything in between, underneath all of that is the sun upholding everything by the word of his power. And even though this creation that he made has been corrupted by sin, the Bible tells us something that's absolutely staggering because every one of us have experienced not only the, the, the warmth of the sun on our skin, but creation hurts <laughs> because it's been corrupted. And the people in it have been corrupted, and we've contributed to the corruption. And yet the Bible presents a picture of a creator who does not stand apart from that creation, but actually enters into it as a participant. And not only does he enter into it as a participant, but, but lives perfectly, dies sacrificially on the cross, resurrects from the dead so that the creation can be restored. Restored. And not only that the creation can be restored, but those of us who have had a, broken, or a relationship broken with God can have that relationship reconciled. And if you're here this morning and you feel the brokenness of your relationship the way, with God, the way I feel the sun on my skin, it's something you can feel. The invitation for you today is to turn in faith to the Christ who would enter creation and offer himself so that you could be restored, forgiven, and made new. Reflection of the, the, the goodness of creation is ultimately a reflection of the goodness of Jesus. We're going to sing about that in a moment, but let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would draw worship out of us as we behold your glory and your goodness and what you've made. It tells us so many things about who you are. If there's someone with us this morning who has not experienced the goodness of Jesus, that feels the brokenness of the world, feels even the brokenness of their own heart, I pray that you would give them eyes of faith to see and believe and trust Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.